My name is Eddie, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm in good hands. I uh, spent the afternoon, early early this morning, part of, part of the early part of the afternoon, with uh, a legitimate lunatic that you heard talk last evening. <laughs> and a mad Russian. <laughs> and we didn't drink. We saw the sights of this beautiful city, and I enjoyed that very much. But that's not what we're here about. First, I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me to come up here and see this country and to be part of what's the Magic Kingdom, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, the gathering of brothers and sisters together who have the good fortune, perhaps, to have this disease. I particularly want to thank Tony and Diane for inviting me up here, and I love you both very much. Thanks very much for it. My name is Eddie, and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. I'm not an alcoholic because I want to be one. I never wanted to be an alcoholic. It just happened that way. I've had it explained to me by by various geniuses, uh, why I'm an alcoholic. Uh, some of them, they just pulled in out of the gutter. <laughs> and I still don't understand why I'm an alcoholic. But I understand that I am one, and that's really all the knowledge that I have to have. Now, I guess there's nothing that I can imagine that's more difficult than to stand before a group of my peers, my friends, my brothers and sisters in, in AA, and have to try to describe what happened to me, because that's what's suggested we do, describe what happened to us. Then, when we got to AA, and now. And uh, I know why that's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult because we have to stand here and tell the truth, you see. And alcoholics don't spread the truth around too carelessly. They save it for emergency situations. <laughs> if you're also a lawyer and a criminal defense attorney, you've got a double hit against you when you try to tell the truth. We, we just don't do that well. We don't do that naturally. But I will certainly try. I wasn't born an alcoholic in spite of rumors to the contrary that some of my brothers, my legitimate familial brothers, uh, spread around. Uh, I grew up in a small coal mining town in upstate Pennsylvania. Uh, Irish immigrant father who was a coal miner, illiterate, uh, lots of kids, grew up on welfare, on relief as we called it in those days. He was a black lung miner and uh, very, very poor environment, but a lot of loving at home. I didn't appreciate it until years later, but there was an awful lot of love there. If I had a chance to uh, to change it, I'll tell you I wouldn't. And that's one of the great gifts of AA, that we can reflect back and see what's precious and what's important. And that's one of the things that's very important for me, to look back and guard and treasure today. I was a very angry kid. I played a lot of sports, uh, 
I resented our situation. I resented everything. As far back as I can remember, I was angry. I began to drink as a teenager, and it didn't help. It didn't change the anger. It let the anger come out. I got into a lot of fights. I got into a lot of scratch. I got into a lot of trouble as a result of drinking. When I was 17 years old, I uh, left home and joined the armed forces. The Korean War was on. It was 1951. And I uh, I also had the uh, classic John Wayne syndrome, you know. You know, there's a war someplace and you want to go. And that's the way it was with me. And I joined and I went. I volunteered to go with a uh, Marine Corps squadron to Korea. And I uh, I got there. And all I remember about it was being terribly frightened <laughs> periodically and came back. I was 19 years old. I was sent to Corpus Christi, Texas, for sure duty at a naval station. I was an enlisted man. I was an aircraft mechanic and a gunner. And I look back to that place and that point in time for a particular purpose. From the perspective of the now time, I can look back to that place and that time and see that the first symptoms of alcoholism, as I understand them to be today, began to appear in my life. And they began to appear in my life the way they appeared in your life, probably. Um, I can remember, for instance, the first time that I didn't make it back to the base on time for duty. <laughs> I fell asleep on a... Uh, in a cotton field on the way back on a Sunday night. Uh, ran in to see the chief petty officer that I worked for uh, when I was late Monday morning, about noon, apologizing to him for being late. And I remember he said to me, ho, 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 all good sailors do that. Don't worry about it. Go take a shower and come to work. And I did. But you know, about the 15th time that I did that, he didn't say ho, ho, ho. <laughs> He called me names that you've been called and that all of us have been called. And uh, I believe that some of them were true when I didn't resent them. I got into drinking because it was good. It felt good. It got progressively better early in the game for a couple of years. Uh, I don't think there was anything better for me at that point in time to get down to the local saloon, uh, sit on a stool, uh, Brag about the drinking you did and about the women you chased. Uh, never told anybody you didn't catch any. You just talked about chasing them. Uh, get up on Saturday morning, play a few sports. Uh, it was so good, you'd do it on Saturday night, Sunday night, miss work Monday morning. And that's kind of how I got into it. And uh, I didn't know I was an alcoholic and I didn't know I had a problem because I didn't really stand out. I was a pretty good sailor. As a matter of fact, the chief that I worked for before I started to get into trouble, thought I was one of the best sailors they had around there. And I had certain standards of behavior, as you did. Everybody has standards. We compromise them as we drink. But one of the standards I had was uh, you get there on time. You stand tall for duty. Take anything you want from the civilian world. Get into all the fights you want, but be there on time and stand tall. And that was sort of a standard of behavior that I had. And compromise it. Compromise a lot of other ones, too. I began to do things, uh, even though I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I began to do things that got their attention. 
Uh, we all do things that get their attention. For instance, if you come into the barracks at two o'clock in the morning with a belly full of booze and you sleep in the top bunk and you don't get out of the bunk to go to the bathroom and it leaks through on the guy below, <laughs> you get their attention. <laughs> if you get to the place where you don't spend your money on little amenities like doing your laundry and just stuff it in the sack at the foot of your bed and you notice when a fellow's walk by and they get that green looking mist over their face from the odor, it gets their attention. Uh, if you're the guy that always starts the fights and can't finish them and the other fellow winds up with the black eye, it, it gets their attention. If you're like me, you reach the point rather quickly when it gets their attention that it's what you always suspected, you know, that they're SOBs and that... Uh, <laughs> that you're glad you find out that they're SOBs. Uh, I remember that chief petty officer that I worked for that was like a father figure and uh, he used to get on my back for what I was doing. Uh, one day I found an answer to that. It was just like magic. It just came right out of the blue, a stroke of genius. One day when he was all over my back, it occurred to me, like magic, that it was him, <laughs> that it was his fault, you see. I've been around AA a lot of years, and it baffled me for a long time, uh, this business of how we can go to the depths we go to and hurt the people we hurt to the extent we hurt them. When a moron, really, with a with a tight derby could see that it's booze, and it uh, seems to me that the reason we can do that is if we can blame others and... Uh, if it wasn't the chief petty officer, it was bad luck. <laughs> if it wasn't bad luck, it was being born an Irish Catholic, you know. If it wasn't being born an Irish Catholic, it was being stationed in Texas with a funny accent. But it was them. It was people. It was places. It was things. It wasn't me. And I was confused and angry and continued to be that way. I'm convinced that if you do one more thing in that process... You can fly with this disease. You can go to the nine rings of Saturn and live there if you can do one more thing. And that's if the only voice you listen to is the voice that's in your head. <laughs> and I got to the place where I did that. When I concluded that the world was full of SOBs and they couldn't be trusted, the only voice I listened to was in here. I had a good sponsor after I got into AA. And he used to say things about uh, uh, my opinions. <laughs> And my uh, my thought process, and sometimes he'd do it in a roundabout way, and he'd uh, say things like, when you're talking to yourself, you're having a conversation with an idiot. <laughs> he'd say to me, uh, you're in your head again, and you're behind enemy lines. <laughs> and there's a minefield there, <laughs> and you're stepping on the mines. <laughs> I'm not interested in what you think. If I was interested in what you think, I'd have asked you when I went to see you at the brig, <laughs> when you got into AA. In any event, uh, this process started to occur with me, and uh, I didn't uh, associate with people. They were SOBs, so I drank alone and stayed in my own head and listened to my own advice. And I got downright weird. Um, for instance, uh, one day I was walking down the streets of uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, uh, at the ripe old age of... 19, and I saw this woman's wash on the line. Uh, men's clothes, women's clothes, pants, brassieres, slips, shirts, 
you name it, it was there. And I, uh, this is two or three o'clock in the morning, and I stole it off. <laughs> then I put it all on. <laughs> I was walking down the street like a crow with my arms stuck out. Forty pounds of clothes. You do that, you're going to draw a cop. If you're like me, he'll uh, just say to you, what are you doing? <laughs> That's 30-some years ago. Still haven't thought of an intelligent answer to that question. <laughs> Didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> but I woke up in jail the next day, and I knew something. Uh, I knew I wasn't a slammer, and I kind of knew why. I had flashback memories of the night before, and went through that exercise in futility where you say to yourself, in that conversation, in the hidden places. No, you didn't do that. <laughs> Another voice says, yeah, you did. <laughs> you look over the corner and there's a pile of clothing there. and uh, Right on the top there's a pair of panties and a brassiere. And I'm not too sure about myself at that point in time anyway. And I knew something. I knew not so much that I was in trouble because even the judge laughed. I mean, even the judge laughed when, when they brought this into court and told them what I was doing. <laughs> but I knew that, uh, I knew that those guys back at the base were going to find out not so much that I was in jail, but why I was in jail. And, and I didn't get along with them at that point in time. And I knew I was going to have troubles when I went back there, and maybe have a fight. And I did something that alcoholics do. To make it easier to bear the pain and the shame that came from that trouble, I took a drink of alcohol. I was 19 years old. I was already an addict, an alcoholic. And to make it easier to bear the pain, I took a drink. Now, if you're an alcoholic, and you take a drink of alcohol, and I've never seen an exception to this, sooner or later, you must drink to excess. You will have no choice. It has nothing to do with morality. It has nothing to do with standards. It has nothing to do with willpower. Sooner or later, you must drink to excess. And I did. And sooner or later, I got into another jam. And to make it easier to bear the pain and the shame of the next jam, I took a drink of alcohol and sooner or later drank to excess. And that's my case history in a nutshell. I wouldn't have to tell you another thing about myself, except, as with every practicing alcoholic I ever listened to, as time goes on, the jams get closer and closer together. The circle gets tighter. If you have standards of behavior and you say to yourself, these are things a being does not do. If they come between you and taking a drink one by one, they go. And when you get to AA, you have nothing left except confusion and regrets. And maybe that's the best way to come in. I continued to do that. I got bizarre. Life would go up and down for me because I'm a bright guy. And I don't mean that as if it's anything I earned. I didn't. I'm a test taker. You know, some people are born musical geniuses. Some people are great ditch diggers. <laughs> Some people are natural aviators. Uh, I'm a born test taker, you know. You give me a test on nuclear physics. 
If it's multiple choice, just let me read it through from beginning to end, and I guarantee I'll pass it. I don't know a damn thing about it, but I'll pass the test. And that's kind of the way it was for me. One day I saw a notice on the bulletin board of uh, of this base, and it said, uh, Fleet-wide competition for appointments to Annapolis. And I thought, that, that's for me. You know, I'll go take those exams. And I did. And don't you know I passed them all? And I was given an appointment to the United States Naval Academy. They gave about 20 out that year to the enlisted ranks. Korean War veteran and everything. And all I had to do was stay straight till the following spring. And I would have had an opportunity to go to the Naval Academy. I wasn't too surprised at that appointment. I thought, they recognize my genius. More than that, this is my chance. In no time at all, I'll graduate, I'll be an ensign, somewhere down the line I'll be an admiral, two or three years. <laughs> this is prospective thinking, and I'll get a battleship, <laughs> and I'll get those son of a bees that have been getting me. <laughs> this was the plan, only between the time I got the appointment and the time it was for me to leave for Annapolis, I went out on my birthday and I did something that alcoholics do, I stole an automobile. Uh, and I didn't have a driver's license and I didn't know how to drive a car. I just saw it in the parking lot of a gin mill and with that genius, genius process that alcoholics have, I took it. Couldn't get it out of first gear. Two o'clock in the morning. You're driving down the road with the engine revving at 5,000 RPMs in first gear. You're going to draw a cop. <laughs> Probably the same one that stopped me with the clothing, you know. <laughs> well, right up behind me, same town, bubblegum machine going. All alcoholics are geniuses. Every one of them. I'm no exception. The cops are right behind me. I pulled that car over to the curb, stopped it, slid over to the passenger side, got out, crawled under the car to hide from the police. <laughs> Who are right behind me watching me do it. <laughs> the Invisible Man Act, it's called. I, I, I see some people out here who are nodding their heads, and I know they've tried to do that. <laughs> and they sat down on the curb and <laughs> waited for me to come out with their flashlights. This time it wasn't ho, ho, ho. This time the judge didn't laugh. This time it was grand theft. And this time it was goodbye Annapolis and prospect of going to a Texas jail and I cried. <laughs> and the Navy that I hated, the commanding officer that I had who was a uh, Hitler, the chief petty officer who should have been shot, uh, all came down and said, please don't send this young man to a Texas prison. He's a Korean War veteran. <laughs> uh, give him back to us and we'll court-martial him. <laughs> So they did, and I did get court-martialed, and that was one of the best breaks I ever got, because I didn't have to face civilian justice. It's sometimes very harsh. That was the first time in my entire life where I saw, very, very briefly, that something was dramatically wrong with me, and it had to do with drinking, but I wasn't exposed to the truth. So I did what so many people try to do so often. 
I quit drinking. <laughs> Forever. Forever. And I lasted about two weeks. I lasted two weeks because I didn't have anything to replace it, and I lasted two weeks because of the reasons that you lasted two weeks or two months or whatever your tolerance level was. Because the first day is not so bad when you're shocked and the liar's dead and you can't tell yourself that was just an accident, you know, or I just had bad luck. This is nuts, and I know it's nuts, and booze has a lot to do with it. But I'll tell you what happens to me when I'm sober before coming to AA. I can stand the first day, it's not too bad. Second day comes along, I'll drag every frustration and fear from the first day and pile it on top of the second, and when the third one comes along, I'll carry every trouble, every resentment, every fear, every insecurity into the third day. And I've got about a two-week tolerance. <laughs> and at the end of two weeks, I don't think drinking's a good idea. I say, screw it, I have to, you know, and I just go get one. And it doesn't have anything to do with logic. And I did, and things got worse. And uh, I got out of the Navy after four years. I uh, I used to say I got out. Actually, I was not allowed to re-enlist. I didn't have the option to stay in. It was goodbye. God bless you. <laughs> Thanks for serving your country. <laughs> but don't come back. So I went home to my hometown. My parents had seen me. This is a small coal mining town, upstate Pennsylvania, back in the bushes. I left a mixed-up teenager and came back a lunatic. And, 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 and acted like a lunatic. I ran in and out of every back door in town. I drank. I got in a fight. You could always tell if I was on a bender because I always had a fat lip and a black eye or both, you know, and I would insist upon my rights and I'd get them right across the face <laughs> every time. <laughs> I, uh, didn't work. I wouldn't work. I lasted three months. Police came to my house one day, and they knew my father, and they said, leave or else. I know what the or else was. I'd uh, stole another car. This time it was the only police car in town. We only had one. Somebody said, I dare you to do it. <laughs> Show me the way. <laughs> so I left, and I, uh, I can remember thinking, who needs it? Uh, I don't need it. I remember when I came back from Korea and went back to that little mountain town. Uh, I wouldn't tell anybody this, but I remember walking up the hill from the railroad station to the top of that mountain and kissing the ground when I got there because I'd missed it so much. And yet when drinking was involved and I was being run off, all I could think was, who needs them? Well, I needed them. Only I didn't know. And I started to wander. I went to New Jersey. I worked in very sophisticated jobs. I pumped gas. I was a short order cook in a restaurant. I worked on a garbage truck for a little while. I worked my way from town to town down to uh, Washington, D.C. with no logic to it. And got a job in Washington, D.C. with an airline. Uh, and was going to do a lot of things with my life. Alcoholics have a wonderful world, wonderful word that they use. It's actually Spanish. <laughs> Manana. I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll shape up. Next week I won't spend my whole paycheck. I'll buy myself some decent clothes. Next semester I'll go to college on the GI Bill. One of these days I'll have enough money to put a down payment on an automobile. And I lived in a boarding house. And I never lived anywhere else except in that boarding house for the next three years. 
And all I did was drink and get seedier and seedier. But I was always going to do things next week. I got into trouble regularly. I got to be well-known by the local police. People would get picked up for drunk driving. I'd get picked up for drunk walking, you know. <laughs> I would do things to get revenge. Ingenious things. I would turn in false fire alarms. <laughs> and then run around the corner and hide to watch the cops come, because I could get even with them that way. One day I turned a fire alarm in, right across the street from the boarding house where I lived. Uh, and I ran around a corner and climbed a tree to watch them come, because I had a better view from there. There wasn't a leaf on the tree. It was the middle of January. <laughs> I, I wondered for years how they knew it was me. Yeah. They come by and they say, come down. <laughs> and I say, who, me? <laughs> they say, no, that other 200-pound canary up in the tree there. <laughs> and I went to jail and I paid fines and I had industrial accidents and I got fired from my job finally. And I had no place to live. I'd live in a boarding house until I got thrown out of it for not paying my bills. Finally, I lost the last job I had in I uh, was sitting across the street from a, a gin mill in the wrong section of town. Broke and had no place to live and no place to go. I had hair down to my shoulders because I didn't want to spend money on a haircut. Now this was late fifties when it, I was hip before I knew it was hip to be hip, if you know what I mean. I had the long hair and I had rotten teeth because I never went to the dentist and I didn't brush them very often. And I was very dirty. I had salt stains down in my waist half the time and a beard and a beard. And I was really hip. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know it. Neither did anybody else. Uh, I saw a sign across the street from the gin mill. And this is God's truth, absolutely, to join the Air Force. <laughs> and I said, that's for me. So I went across the street to join the Air Force, mind you, with the beard and the bad teeth and stinking and uh, long hair. And this sergeant <laughs> took one look at me, and he didn't want anything to do with me. I mean, he didn't even want to see me in the office. And he gave me all kinds of reasons to get out. And finally, when all else failed, he gave me his test, because I think he figured I'd flunk him. I was drunk. But that was his mistake. <laughs> I can take tests drunk. <laughs> and I took his tests, and I think I had the highest set of scores on those basic aptitude tests that he'd had in his couple of years as a recruiting sergeant. And I also told them I was an experienced aircraft mechanic, and the Air Force needed aircraft mechanics. And they enlisted me. <laughs> and I got a haircut, and I got clean clothes, and I got some food. And I started to drink, and I was going through the little refresher training course. And these test scores came back. Uh, and they uh, called me in one day and said, uh, Young man, you, uh, you have great potential here. <laughs> We'd like to give you some additional tests. And the additional tests were the Air Force Officers Qualification Test, Flight Aptitude Test, Two-Year College Equivalency Test, and a few other things. And I passed them all. And about a month afterwards, they were desperately, desperately short of aviators. And they uh, said to me, would you like to go through flight training? <laughs> would you like to be an officer and a flyer? <laughs> and I said, why not? I really wasn't too surprised. I, I, I'm serious. I thought that's what it ought to be. If I can't be an admiral, I'll be a general. 
if I uh, can't get the battleship, I'll get a bomber. But uh, I'll get those son of a bees. <laughs> One way or another now, I was in wonderful physical condition at that point in time. I weighed about 170 pounds. I did not eat. Um, I remember just before I went into the Air Force, standing in front of a mirror in a bathroom one day in this boarding house, examining my physique, because I was concerned about the way I looked, you know, fat lips, sunken eyes, bad teeth, and I was making a, a muscle you know, in my 20s. Nothing happened. <laughs> I mean, nothing happened. I mean, can you imagine standing there? I don't mean having big muscles. I mean having nothing happen. Nothing. Just lay there. <laughs> So when they sent me to flight training, it was a very rigorous physical experience, and uh, they made us run a couple of miles in the morning. The gate slammed shut. I couldn't get out. Uh, the whole class would finish the two-mile run. Way back in the distance would be a black speck with green spots before his eyes, kneeling down, puking, <laughs> and that was me. And they didn't care how, good thing, they didn't care how long it took, but I couldn't drink. Three months later, I was in pretty good physical shape. Brain was cleared up, I fit in. Make a long story very short, I graduated from that program after 15 months. I had a pair of wings on my chest. I had second lieutenant bars on my shoulder. I hadn't drank very often. I got off with a crazy ex-Russian while I was there. And we got thrown in jail in Mexico on a one overnighter we had the whole time we were in flight school. But other than that, I didn't drink. I succeeded. I was welcomed aboard my new base. I was sent to McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey and uh, reported aboard. Second Lieutenant, welcome aboard, son. <laughs> We're glad to have you. We're always glad to have bright, young, ex-enlisted men. This is the Colonel telling me that. I was a distinguished graduate of that program. I forgot all about booze. I forgot all about problems. I had a vision of what life was going to be like because I didn't remember it clearly. I thought, I'm going to... Uh, Get an apartment in town. I'm going to fly airplanes. Look good. Buy a convertible automobile. Learn to drive. <laughs> Legally. <laughs> We're drink sophisticated drinks. Martinis. Instead of the cheap wine that I used to love so well. This was the plan. This was the plan. And I started to drink. And in the next six months, I, uh, next nine months, I was in the local jail six times. You know? I spent a month in an Air Force hospital because I almost bled to death. I had a varicosity in my esophagus from puking and drinking and was vomiting blood by the sinkful. I wouldn't tell anybody because it was them. They passed out one day and had to be hospitalized unconscious. They're a month. Do you drink? A couple of beers. <laughs> I was grounded. I was on a control roster. I was court-martialed in nine months. I was seeing visions. I was under arrest. I wasn't allowed to leave my barracks. I wasn't allowed to leave the room. Then I used to say I found AA. <laughs> But that's not accurate. AA found me. And AA found me in the most peculiar way. There was a guy that lived next door to me in that bachelor officer's quarters. We shared a john. We shared the latrine, the bathroom. There was his room and my room and in between a bathroom. 
And I think that's a fate worse than death. To have to share a bathroom with a drunk. If you ain't one. You know? Because every morning he'd see me slipping and sliding on that commode and green slime hanging out of my nose and <laughs> screaming for a rock. <laughs> it's so rubber-legged you can't stand up. It's so shaky you can't even pick up a glass of water, much less booze. And this guy was weird, see. I'd done things there that got their attention. And everybody on the base knew it. If, uh, well, tell, you know, if you lose an airplane and you can't tell them where you left it, it gets their attention. <laughs> if you're sent off to fly in Africa and all you do is get drunk and have a four-engine airplane and you use that four-engine airplane to buzz elephants, it gets their attention, particularly if somebody tells them about it. They don't show up when you're supposed to show up. It gets their attention. You're on a flight to Germany and forget to come back. It really gets their attention. And uh, I couldn't understand why they were upset at first, but uh, but they were. They were very upset. I remember my commanding officer one time happened to come down to Philadelphia. I went to Philadelphia on a weekend. I don't know why the hell I went there, but I did. And 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 I got picked up by the cops for drunk walking again. And uh, I'm in jail, and this giving the sergeant a hard time, and, and he said, Lieutenant. If you don't shut up, I'm going to chain you to that wall. And I said, you wouldn't dare. <laughs> and he chained me to the wall. I was there like Christ on a cross, and I don't mean anything offensive by that. I was there on the wall with my hand shackled when the commanding officer walked in to pick me up, his star young officer, you know, and sat in his car all the way back to the base with two from my uniform thinking, I just got to get out of here. One day when I was in that bathroom, Kurt, the fellow that lived next door to me, brought me a message to save my life, and uh, I want to tell you about that. I was crying, and I said, my God, i got to stop drinking. And with the peculiar logic of deity, the guy that was watching me and listening to me when I said those words was maybe the one guy on all of McGuire Air Force Base that knew something about alcoholism. Kurt, the guy that lived next door to me. Who's not an alcoholic. He's not an alcoholic to this day. I thought he was a little bit weird because he paid attention to me when nobody else did. And there was no reason to pay attention to me. And he said to me, do you mean that? And he'd been watching me. And I said yes and meant no. But that's all he needed. And he told me about alcoholism because his father was an alcoholic. He told me about his good Texas daddy, as he called him, going through the DTs. He told me about his father going to a Texas prison for two years for doing what alcoholics do best, kiting bad checks. He told me about what it was like when he was a teenager growing up in a broken home, a divorce coming from alcoholism. Told me about sitting on his dad's chest when he was 14 and 15 while the old man pulled the lizards off that he was seeing in the DPs. But more importantly, he told me about his father going to Alcoholics Anonymous and never drinking again. And I listened to him. And he suggested that I might benefit by AA. 
And I said to him, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And I'll never forget his answer. He looked at me kind of puzzled and he said, uh, well, I don't know, Ed, but they won't turn you down. <laughs> So I'm going to tell you something that saved my life. And I'm going to tell you something because there's probably some guy or gal in this room tonight who's thinking, I wonder if I'm a real alcoholic. Well, if you're thinking about that and you're here and you got here because of booze, I'll tell you what my sponsor told me. Don't worry about it. If you're not, you'll be until the real thing comes along. <laughs> So at his expense on his time, Kirk called AA, and I was to meet the guy that was to become my sponsor at the Salvation Army building, a little recreation center in the middle of town, little town, camp town, and, and I'm an atheist now at that point, and I'm a militant atheist. I don't just sit back and say I don't believe. I take issue with those who do, at least when I'm drunk, and I'm thinking, I can't go into a Salvation Army building. I lose my reputation. <laughs> this is the same guy who, in January, had crawled into somebody else's car, a major's car, in the parking lot of the officer's club, you know, in the middle of January, because I couldn't find my barracks. So I found an open car, and crawled in it, and fell asleep, and woke up, and puked on the door, and then leaned in the puke, and froze to the puke, and the guy comes out and opens the door, and I come with it, you know, frozen to it, with puke. And he's, he's irate, and I can't understand why he's upset. Uh, and I was worried about my reputation, because somebody would see me going into a Salvation Army building. And I walk in there, and uh, there's a sign above the door that says, uh, it's a wonderful thing. I came to believe it's the most wonderful piece of advice anybody ever got. At that point in time, I thought, this is nuts. It said, when your knees knock, kneel. <laughs> Don't know how many times I've said that to myself over the years. When your knees knock, kneel. I walk in there. I meet the guy that's to become my sponsor, and I've got to tell you about him. I had a fat lip and a black eye. That was not unusual. And I had the shakes. And Kurt took me there. And the guy I'm supposed to meet, his name is Joe. They don't give last names, as you know, in this mysterious organization. Believe me, there's a good reason for that. If they'd have said, that's Chief Master Sergeant Dugan, that you're going to meet, the base sergeant major, believe me, I'd have been gone long before I ever got there. But I walk in the door, and Joe is Chief Master Sergeant Dugan, sitting there. And that's the meanest man alive. And everybody on the base knows it. Nobody on that base says anything to him unless they're the rank of colonel or higher. And he was an old Smokey Bear type, you know. I joined the Army in 19, 1898, probably, you know. In forever. Grizzled. And, and, and everybody was terrified of him. And there he is sitting there with a cup of coffee. And I'm pushed over to the table. And he said, I understand you have a drinking problem. <laughs> and he said, uh, tell me a little bit about it. And I did. He said, how much you drink? I said, a lot. He said, how much is a lot? I told him, he said, that's a lot. <laughs> and he said, do you want to quit? I said, yeah. He said, when? 
Any answer other than right now? He wasn't interested, I guarantee you. I guarantee you. He was about five foot six, about 140 pounds. I was six foot two, and I don't know what I weighed at that point in time. But let me tell you something. I was terrified of that guy. And finally, he asked me a question that I've got to repeat because I said last night it defined our relationship forever till he died. Finally, he said to me, what's your rank? And he knew. And just as arrogantly as I could say, I said, second lieutenant. <laughs> I was a passed over second lieutenant. I was a second lieutenant that wasn't promoted to first lieutenant. But I said to him as arrogantly as I could, second lieutenant. And I'll quote his answer. And I don't mean to offend anybody. He said, quote, I'll be the son of a bitch. I've been waiting 20 years to get my hands on a second lieutenant. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> the man took me to meetings. He used to sign me out as a piece of contraband material. He went to my commanding officer and got permission to take me off to base. But bring it back by midnight. It will turn into a pumpkin if you don't bring it back by midnight. Yes, you're welcome to him, Sarge. Get him the hell out of here. Bad example. <laughs> and I resented it, you see, very much. And I went to meetings, and uh, strange things happened. The fat lip went down. The black eye opened. People shook my hand. I heard folks talk about drinking and about how they felt. And I didn't necessarily believe it, but there was something true about it that seemed to punch its way through to me. I didn't get sober right away. I got drunk uh, three or four times in the first six months I was around AA. And it was like for a weekend or for a couple of days because I just couldn't stand being sober. But I fell in love with AA, and uh, that's the first thing that happened to me that made a profound difference in my life. And then one day, when nothing special happened, and let me say that again to you, please. One day, when nothing special happened at all, the 3rd of September, 1962, I just didn't take a drink of alcohol that day. I had absolutely no idea that that would be the last drink I've taken up to now. I was 28 years old, and I was not prepared to quit forever. I thought I'm far too young for this system. And in addition to that, I have deeper problems, and if I could figure those out, I'd be all right. I'd be able to drink. Uh, I'm here to tell you that those deeper problems are all called alcoholism. And you find out that all those other problems are alcoholism when you listen to enough alcoholics talk about those other problems in talking about their alcoholism. I don't separate anything about me from the disease of alcoholism. It's all in one basket. Thus, it's nice and handy to deal with. And if you deal with the problem of alcoholism, as is suggested in this program, you will find that those other deeper problems have a way of clearing up. I got sober. After I was sober about six months, they let me go back to flying airplanes under supervision. They figured they might not explode if I got too close to them. I used to report it in the morning with a clean uniform and no vomit. <laughs> I knew where I was all weekend, and the colonel wasn't calling me in on the carpet to explain my behavior of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I began to do well. I began to do very well. The colonel held the court-martial in abeyance, put me on restriction, placed me under supervision, 
for a year. And when I was sober a year, he handed me those court martial papers and said, here's a present for you. He thought that it was his exceptional leadership that was shaping me up. And I never told him any different. <laughs> I had to see a psychiatrist under orders. I walked in to see this guy, and uh, after our first visit, I figured I was smarter than him. <laughs> so I never bothered to tell him the truth. But as I was sobering up because of the influence of AA, he thought it was his skill and cunning, and he gave me a clean bill of health and said I was sane, and I never told him any different, you know. I just kept getting sober, staying sober. Flew airplanes, did the job. I went to meetings. I loved what I saw in AA. I would go to great lengths to pick people up and take them to AA meetings because I got patted on the back when I did that. I liked you. I didn't like me. I was an atheist. I couldn't believe in God. I did not believe in God. I did not like the idea of the 12 steps. I just ignored them when I heard them. I could not see how they had any relationship to drinking or sobriety. I stayed sober on momentum for several years, and I'd still do it, except with those of us who are really legitimately alcoholics. It's my opinion and my experience that you don't have to worry too much about whether or not you'll take these steps, <laughs> whether or not you'll put them in your life. Because if you have the kind of a personality I have, you'll have no choice someday. And the way it happened with me was this way. Sober, periodically, I was crazy. Uh, I wasn't always crazy. It would come and go. If I was crazy all the time, I think I got used to it. <laughs> but if it comes and goes, it'll drive you nuts, you know, literally. And it would come and go in strange fashions. Uh, on the wrong day, for instance, if I walked into the air operations office uh, a couple of years sober, if I walked in there on the wrong day and two guys were talking uh, and they shut up when I walked in, then they were talking about me. <laughs> if I held on to that and thought about it for 12 hours, I could tell you exactly what they said. <laughs> on the wrong day, even though I hadn't heard a word. If I brooded on it and was angry and vengeful for 36 hours, then it was time to put a hand grenade in their desk drawer and tie the pin to the handle so that when it was open, it would explode and they'd die. And they deserve it because of what they said about me, even though I didn't hear a word. <laughs> and you know, two, three days go by and uh, then it pass. <laughs> and I think, boy, don't let that happen again. <laughs> and it would happen again. It would happen again, periodically. And it all culminated for me after I was sober about two and a half years. Uh, with a new car, a convertible, and several blondes, and money in my pocket, and got into a fight at an AA meeting with my best buddy, only once. On the wrong day, somebody told me that Andy was talking about me. So, uh, they didn't tell me what he was talking about, but uh, 
was the wrong day, and, and I figured that he was talking about the last sin I committed, even though I hadn't heard a word he said, and I knew he didn't see me <laughs> committing the last sin. But I brooded on it, and I walked into an AA meeting one day, and he said, Hi, Ed, how you doing? He put his hand out, and I smacked him in the mouth. And uh, uh, he got up and smacked me in the mouth, and we had a little fight rolling around on the floor like two mature, solid, exemplary AA members. <laughs> But I did what all good drunks do. I went outside and I uh, leaned up against a tree and I started to cry. And I don't cry. My stick was never cry. My stick is set out in life to be the toughest son of a bitch you can be and don't let anybody get near you. And God pity me, I did become that. That's a pity that a man could do that to himself. Really. Anyway, I went to my sponsor, Joe. And... uh He'd been telling me I had to take these steps. And I had explained to him that I didn't need them. And when he get too much heat on me, I'd disappear for a couple of months from talking to him. But this time I went back to him because I knew something was going to happen. I was going to get drunk. And I went in and told him what happened. And I said, I, I'm going to get drunk. And I don't want to get drunk. And isn't that miraculous? I don't want to get drunk. And yet I knew I was going to get drunk. And I told him that. And he said to me, yes, you are. Mm-hmm. Unless you do something else. <laughs> and I said to him, what's that? <laughs> and he said, maybe you have to work these steps. Maybe it's no longer a suggestion for you, sport. Maybe you have to work them. And I started on my typical litany that I had trouble believing in God, that I didn't believe in God. And he said something to me. That had profound implications. Um, that day, my life took a dramatic turn. I didn't know it at the time, but I looked back at it, and it took the most dramatic and profound turn with these words, because I was hurting bad enough to hear them. He said to me, What, on the face of it, does the fourth step have to do with God. And I had to say to him, on the face of it, nothing. And he said, why don't you do that? Why don't you write down that inventory? I've come to believe, by the way, that it has everything to do with God. But I didn't know it at that point in time. So I said to him, uh, how do you do that? How do you do it? He pointed me to pages 66 through 73 of the big book and said, why don't you follow that guide? Why don't you write down the names of the people you hate <laughs> and why? Maybe you learn something about yourself. Why don't you go through the seven cardinal sins as suggested, just as a guide? Even if you don't believe in God, why don't you go through them anyway? And he said to me, why don't you start with the worst thing you ever did? And I knew what that was. I knew what that was, and I didn't want to think about it. Uh, I don't want to think about it now. I don't even want to tell you about it now. But I had to do it. And the worst thing I ever did, I did to my father. Uh, 
My father was a black lung miner, and he was uh, a very gentle old man. And the last time I saw him alive was being was when I was being run out of my hometown. And uh, with the peculiar, tragic times that alcoholics experience and that the people who love them experience, with the peculiar logic of that kind of thing, as I was leaving, he was on his deathbed. He couldn't breathe. I was his oldest son, and he loved me to death. And at that point in time, he started to lecture me about my behavior and the scandalous effect I had on my younger brothers and sister. And with that crazy, crazy, peculiar logic of the alcoholic, it seemed to me at that point in time that it was his fault that I was the way I was. So I told him so. Uh, I, I told that general old man that uh, um, the worst thing that ever happened to me was to have him for a father. That the, it was the sorriest excuse for a man I'd ever seen. That I'd hoped I'd never see him again. That I hated his guts. And big tears ran down his uh, cheeks. And I left and uh, I never saw that man alive again. And that's the worst thing I ever did in my life. And I wish I hadn't. I never told him I loved him. And I did, dearly. So I want to tell you something while I'm thinking about it. I love you. You know? More importantly, I know you love me back. If you love somebody, I have a son today. He's 18, he's embarrassed by me because I hug the shit out of him, pardon my language. You know? And I tell him I love him. And if you love somebody, for God's sake, tell him today. You know, don't wait till tomorrow. Tell him now. For your sake. I wrote this down. I wrote down every other rotten thing I'd ever done. I wrote down the people I hated. And I went to see a priest, even though I didn't believe in God, because he couldn't squeal. <laughs> to take my first step. I didn't tell him I was coming. I just walked in a confessional to make the story of the century. I wanted two hours of his time with a line a half a mile long of other sinners coming in there. And it didn't work out too good. <laughs> and I don't blame him. So I finally went to my sponsor, and I took out what I'd written down. And I told him every rotten thing I'd ever done. And he crossed and uncrossed his legs a few times, and he shared a little bit about himself. And when I was finished, he said to me, uh, Is that all? <laughs> I thought I'd made the confession of the century, and all the man says is, Is that all? <laughs> I learned something from that experience. I learned one, and I want to tell you this because I didn't know it, and maybe you don't know it, and I hope you do, I learned two things. First, I learned that I didn't commit any original sins. Now, let me repeat that. <laughs> there are no original sinners in this room. We are the same. The person beside you is your brother or your sister in this fellowship. 
They know you. If you think they don't, you're the only fool in the room that's fooling himself. And if you spin out for a couple of years, that's your problem. I did that. It is unnecessary to do that. We are alcoholics. Sometimes, the, and that's a wonderful word, because it's what brings us together. The suffering from the disease of alcoholism. The suffering from the disease of alcoholism that goes on when you're sober, too. And that we have a chance of treating if we share with each other and recognize with each other that that's what we're here about. We're not here to philosophize. We're not here because we're star-bellied sneeches, you know. We're not here because we eat too much chocolate. I mean, you may eat too much chocolate. You may have other problems. God love you. If you're an alcoholic, put them in the same basket and bring them here. But be an alcoholic. Be a member of AA. Be a real member of AA. I hear a lot of folks say, and I wish they wouldn't, I'm Joe Smith and I'm duly addicted. Or I'm Sheila and I'm cross-addicted. Or I'm uh, Mary Lou and I'm uh, poly-addicted. And I... Uh, I've never been addicted to crosses, to polys, or to duels, you know. <laughs> Neither of you. Neither of you. Neither of you. You can be addicted to Irish setters if you want to be, too, you know. <laughs> but what brings us together is our common identity. <laughs> and I don't have an axe to grind. I just love the sound of the word alcoholic. <laughs> and if you are one, no matter what else you are, Say so. Because then I recognize you. You know? And then you recognize me. And then we can walk this path together. And we can understand from whence we came and from where we're going. I took this fifth step with my sponsor, Joe. And I got such a big kick out of it that I had to back up and regroup. I felt so good initially that I thought maybe there is something to this. <laughs> Maybe the God boys have something there. I had an awful lot of trouble believing in a God. I don't know why, but I had an awful lot of trouble. I had an inordinate amount of trouble believing in God. One thing I didn't do, I wouldn't resign from the debate society. I read everything I could get my hands on because I was smart, you see, and wanted to know more complicated explanations for very simple problems, and I wasted a lot of time with that. Uh, I saw in our AA literature, the big book, uh, a volume that sounded very impressive and uh, very sophisticated, so I thought I'll read that. And it was William James, Varieties of Religious Experience. And that was a big mistake for me to read that book, because William James makes a suggestion that we use in AA. He he talks about a principle that uh, works when all else fails. And that principle he calls the as-if principle. And it works like this. If you had to wait for me to tell you the truth until I felt like it, you'd be waiting a long time. But if I wish to feel like an honest man, all I have to do is tell the truth for six months. <laughs> If I wish to feel like a loving human being, all I have to do is show love consistently. 
If I wish to seek God and can't find him, William James suggests, all you have to do is act as if, is go through the motions. In short, pray. Go down on your knees and pray and ask. And quit worrying about whether you believe or whether you don't believe. And quit worrying about whether or not prayer is like a radar set that bounces energy out and it bounces right back at you and zaps you, you know. Just do it and look back after the fact and see what happens. And I did that. And for me, it's been kind of a long understanding. Let me tell you a little bit about what it's like sober after I started to take these steps. I hadn't been home in four years. Um, when I told my sponsor about my dad, he said, uh, you still got a mother? I said, yeah. Where is she? Up in Pennsylvania. When was the last time you saw her? About four years ago. He said, does she know you're alive? I said, I don't know. He said, why don't you go see her? And he said, better yet, why don't you write her first? So I wrote her a letter. And uh, I got an answer. And at the urging of my sponsor, I uh, went back to see my mom. And my mother is like a lot of mothers. Like Dillinger's mother, probably. You know, my Johnny's not a bad boy. No matter what the hell you do, you're not a bad boy. So. <laughs> so I go home and I see this old Irish woman and she's crying. And, uh, I couldn't cry in front of her, so I went in the bathroom and cried. And uh, I also had a bunch of brothers there. My mother was delighted to see me. But I had several brothers that were as big as I am that didn't want to see me. And they didn't make any bones about that. And uh, we had several battles about that, particularly the one that's closest to me in age. Who today, George, is my best friend. Best friend I got in the world. We had battles, royal. But I kept going back at the urging of my sponsor. And I got an opportunity to do something that we should never miss. I got an opportunity to feel what it's like to make amends. And I don't mean to say I'm sorry. I mean to make amends as is explained in our 12 steps. Go back and seek to undo the damage that you can. And I did that. And I won it. It was my prize. I didn't know it. I thought I was doing something for my mom, but I wasn't. I went back to see that woman no matter where I was stationed. I stayed in the Air Force. I learned to sit around and hold her hand. I learned to tell her I loved her. I learned to have the opportunity to be of use to her. Finally, I had a chance to make amends in a very peculiar way. She had two strokes in 1972. And I was the only one of her sons that was able to come home and stay for 30 days while she was in the hospital and couldn't talk and when she was frightened. Uh, I went there and fed her three times a day, put food in her mouth, and would massage it out of her cheeks because it would get stuck. And uh, 
told that old woman every day that I loved her and that I'd be there. And I was. Every day. So she died. And I was what I always wanted to be. And all I ever really wanted to be, when all the crap is boiled off, and all I think anybody else wants to be who's in this program, when all the nonsense is boiled off, and all the shields are cracked, and all the egos put aside, I wanted to be a decent human being. And because I associated with people like you, I can occasionally be a decent human being. And that's priceless. That's a priceless gift and a priceless opportunity to have in life. Don't miss the opportunity to make amends. It's a trip nobody should miss. It's a ride to the stars. It really is for you. I know I'm wandering. Please forgive me. I stayed in the Air Force. I ultimately became a commander of an Apollo recovery team. I went to Vietnam. I was stationed all over the world. I spent a year in Vietnam and survived that, uh, flying airplanes in combat. Um, not because I wanted to be there. I was just there. On the love and understanding of AA folks that wrote to me and sent me tapes because there was no AA there. <laughs> the nearest group was 600 miles away. I got to that meeting several times by bumming a ride on a general's airplane when he went down to Bangkok just to get to an AA meeting. Started a little group ultimately on that base. A couple of guys got sober. I never had a temptation to drink that entire year, and I want to tell you why. Every day of that year, I went to the chapel first thing in the morning, and I said a couple of prayers. First one was, I know what I am, and I know who you are. And I just don't want to die a drunk. And I'll take whatever else is coming down. And I never had a temptation to drink in an entire year. <laughs> because I did that every day. And in the evening I thanked them. And I played my cards straight. And I'm lucky enough to be back here when there are lots of men who were not. Many of them who were in AA. I got married after I was sober three or four years in AA. I can't even blame it on booze. <laughs> <laughs> I have a son out of that marriage I told you about. When I came back from Vietnam, that marriage was over, and I wouldn't let go of it for several years, and then my ex-wife let go of it for me. <laughs> and I didn't want her to do it, but she did, and I survived that. And, uh, I haven't remarried since. Uh, I became a very successful officer. I got to be commander of an Apollo recovery team, and ultimately an Apollo recovery area. I was comfortable in that life. I had a nice career going. I had learned to pray regularly for guidance in life. And certainly not with the speed of light, or certainly not by way of written revelation. But I began to sense, in seeking God's will for me, that there was something else I was supposed to do. This may sound improbable to you, but it's God's truth. And it seemed to me that what I was supposed to do was uh, get out of the Air Force and stop playing with toys <laughs> and uh, 
go to college and get an education, and then go to law school and become a lawyer, and represent people who can't afford to represent themselves. Now, if that sounds like a lot to swallow, let me tell you this gospel truth. I genuinely felt that's what I was supposed to do. Then I had the misfortune of telling a career counselor, Colonel, that that's what I plan to do. And he said, uh, well, how much education do you have, Major? <laughs> I said, a high school diploma. <laughs> he said, you know, it takes four years of college and three years of graduate school and law school. I said, uh, no, but I'm glad to find that out. Uh, and he informed me of that process. Well, let me tell you what I did, folks. Uh, I did it humbly. I really did do it humbly. I got out. And I went to college. One day at a time. And I graduated from college with top honors. And I applied to ten law schools because I didn't have the confidence that I'd be accepted in any of them, and I was accepted by all ten. I spent a... I spent a fortune on application fees. <laughs> and I went to law school, and uh, I graduated three years later. And uh, I did what most alcoholics do. I, I thought I'd take the bar exam in two states instead of one. You know, why do it easy when you can do it the hard way? So I studied for the Pennsylvania bar and the New Jersey bar and took, uh, took the examinations back to back the first time and passed them both. I was sworn in as an attorney in 1981 in the state of New Jersey uh, on faith. My engines hum if I take guidance from my higher power that I know is God. And uh, if you don't, really don't sweat that. You're in good company here. You're talking to an ex-atheist. And it's a long understanding. But what I tell you is the absolute truth about how it worked and how it is for me. I can be what I think I'm destined to be and what I think we are all destined to be. And sometimes we fight it. We're destined to be, I think, dutiful servants. Dutiful servants to life, the gift that's been given to us. Dutiful servants to God's will in our lives as best we can see it. I walked in off the street to the public defender's office in New Jersey and told them I was their man. <laughs> that I was not only a graduate of law school, I was a little bit old, but uh, I want to explain to you what's going on here. <laughs> and uh, it's my destiny to be a trial lawyer. Do you know there was one guy in there who was the boss who was so aghast at this story coming in off the streets that he said, hire him? <laughs> and they did. And on faith, I put one foot in front of the other, and I'm doing exactly today what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, in five years, I'm now chief chief of the region, you know, the the, the, the big banana, the, the big peanut, the, the experienced trial attorney, the senior staff man, the boss. And I'm not impressed with it. I'm humbled. Because I think that's what I should be doing with my life in service in a job of work. Now let me get on to something far more important. Let me get on to the spiritual adventure and then I'll shut up. 
I've come full circle to believe that the logo above the door to the Salvation Army building where I went to my first AA contact is the absolute truth. When your knees not kneel. <laughs> kneel even when they don't. They get calluses and they get used to it and you feel good about it. I've come full circle to understand that if I accept guidance from God as I understand him, I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm going to be tough. Because it's not important anymore whether or not I feel vulnerable. It's not important anymore much whether or not you'll hurt me or whether anybody else will. It's not important for me any longer to try to be a strong man. Because it's the gentle people that I remember. It's the oh-so-gentle ones like my father that are treasured in my memory. History teaches us that too. I'm a history bug. I was reading about 12th and 13th century Europe recently. There were three men that dominated that era. One was a pope. Innocent III, who raised the church perhaps to its highest level, from which it fell ten years later. The other was Frederick II, an emperor, who raised the Holy Roman Empire to its highest level, from which it fell and disintegrated a hundred years later. The third was an obscure, gentle, reclusive saint. His name was Francis of Assisi. Only trivia freaks and amateur historians like me could tell you about the Pope or the Emperor because nobody else remembers them. But the gentle saint's words influence men to this day. In our 11-step prayer, Lord, let me be an instrument of thy peace. Where do we go? And how do we say it? I've tried my best in a confused way to tell you what the adventure is for me. I know that logic has nothing to do with that. I know that we have a special language. I know we have a language that Carl Jung described as he said this. The heart has a language which the mind can never know. AA speaks the language of the heart which the mind can never know. I'm a fortunate man to be able to stand here and speak to you this evening and to tell you that I care what happens to you, and to tell you that I'll say a prayer tonight for you, and to ask you to pray for me in a very special way, because we are brothers and sisters, and I'm your brother, and I wouldn't lie to you. I remember, and 
and I hope I always will. The guys who went before, the old sergeants, my sponsor Joe, in whose footsteps we walk, all the way back to the first two that started this magic kingdom in which we live. I love the Salvation Army, even though I'm an Irish Catholic. They gave us places to meet. I remember their old hymns. And I remember one of their hymns that says, O God, I reach my hand to thine. No other help I know. If thou withdraw thy hand from mine, wherever shall I go? Long ago, I reached my hand out, tentatively and full of fear, to men who took it and never let go. It's only proper that it's in their name, in their memory, and in their love that I thank you and salute you.